0: the crime tree is a true crime podcast detailing the crimes and events committed against others listener discretion is advised the 1980s saw the establishment and introduction of perhaps what is the greatest advance in forensic science, DNA analysis. Dr. Alec Jeffries, the pioneer of DNA profiling, used it for the first time in a criminal investigation in 1986 to help identify and convict British man Colin Pitchfork for the 1983 and 1986 rape and murders of two 15-year-old girls, Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth from neighbouring Leicestershire villages. Around 500 local men came forward to voluntarily give their DNA. This effort exonerated one man, Richard Buckland, who had confessed to the 1983 murder and unmasked Colin Pitchfork for who and what he really was, a sadistic and violent predator. He was arrested on the 19th of September, 1987, and after admitting to both murders, was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1988. One month after Colin Pitchfork's arrest in the UK, the United States had their first conviction as a direct result of this new technology, when Florida man, Tommy Lee Andrews, was convicted on November the 6th, 1987, and sentenced to 22 years for rape and burglary. When DNA profiling was first introduced, it required biological samples to be relatively large, but with its advancement came the new technique known as Polymerase Chain Reaction, or PCR which was first invented in the UK by Kerry Mullis in 1983, but was not widely used until much later. PCR is the technique which essentially makes billions of copies of a specific segment of DNA, amplifying even the smallest of samples into larger ones suitable for testing. It was not until this advancement that Australia, in 2001, solved their first murder by using DNA profiling. Wayne Butler had long been a suspect in the 1983 sexual assault and murder of 40-year-old Celia Natasha Doughty on Brampton Island in Queensland, but due to insufficient evidence he remained a free man. That was until DNA testing techniques were advanced enough to establish that in all probability the semen stain found on Celia belonged to him. Although this was the first murder in Australia solved based solely on DNA analysis, It certainly was not the first time that Australia used DNA profiling to assist the police in criminal investigations. One of those cases included the 1980 rape and murder of a young woman who failed to return home after a night out celebrating her 22nd birthday in Hobart, Tasmania. You are listening to The Crime Tree. I'm your host Jasmine and this is the story of Amanda Susan Carter. Amanda Susan Carter was the oldest of three siblings, born on the 26th of July, 1958, to parents Don and Faye Carter. Amanda, along with her sister Debbie and brother Brenton, grew up in a loving and close-knit household in the beachside suburb of Torona, Tasmania, about 10 kilometres south of the state's capital of Hobart. Their father Don was a bit of a local celebrity, having performed in 1956 on the national TV show The Hit Parade and was one of Australia's first advertising icons, featuring as the BP man in a national advertisement campaign. He was also associated with the work towards the introduction of colour television in Australia. On the evening of her 22nd birthday, Amanda and her 19-year-old sister Debbie had plans to hit the night spots of nearby Hobart to celebrate, ensuring they were appropriately addressed for the weather. Amanda in her favourite blue denim jeans, jumper and cardigan and warm leather shoes, she slung her brown handbag over her shoulder and along with her sister said goodbye to their parents, informing them not to wait up and that they would catch a taxi home. This was not uncommon for either of the girls. They regularly went out to the pubs and clubs and would always get a cab ride home, either separately or together. But as Debbie woke on Sunday the 27th of July 1980, Hungover and hazy at the events from the previous night, she was shocked, along with her parents, to discover that Amanda had not made it home. Finding his daughter's bed empty and not slept in, Don went straight to the police. Debbie recalled as much as she could for detectives. Herself and Amanda had gone to several bars before arriving at the Hope and Anchor Tavern on the corner of Macquarie Street and Market Place sometime after midnight. From here things were unclear. Debbie remembered talking to multiple people they knew as well as two men that they had just met that night. She recalled that one of the men had bright red hair and a bushy red beard and that they may have left the tavern together sometime in the early hours of the morning. Debbie had arrived home at approximately 4:30 a.m and at the time she assumed that Amanda was already fast asleep in bed. Detectives chased up the mutual friends of both girls who had seen them out that night, all of whom told police that besides being quite intoxicated, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Many also recalled seeing both Amanda and Debbie leaving the Hope and Anchor Tavern at approximately 2.30am with two unidentified men, one of whom had bright red hair and beard. While following this line of inquiry, detectives also contacted the local taxi company to ascertain which drivers were working that Saturday night and into the early morning hours of Sunday. Knowing that Amanda had planned to catch a taxi home, they hoped that one of these drivers recalled seeing her. The closest taxi rank to the Hope and Anchor Tavern was only a couple hundred metres down the road, on the corner of Macquarie and Elizabeth Street at the old Colonial Mutual Life building. The CML building is a historic seven-storey Art Deco high-rise constructed almost 100 years ago and is located opposite the Hobart General Post Office. Both Amanda and Debbie were familiar with this taxi rank and used it regularly. Several drivers came forward to tell investigators that a woman matching Amanda's description was seen sitting at the taxi rank on the steps of the CML building, clearly intoxicated sometime between the hours of 2 and 3.30am. The driver of cab number 99 reported that as he drove along Macquarie Street at around 3.30am, he noticed another taxi driver walk up to the CML building steps, where the woman had been sitting not long earlier. He picked up a handbag before getting back into his taxi and driving away. This taxi was identified as cab number 58, the only yellow Ford Falcon on the road as a taxi at that time, and was owned and driven by local man Gerald Wayne Highland. Another driver then came forward to say that he thought he had seen the woman get into Gerald's taxi before he returned to the steps for her bag. Police now rushed to find Gerald Highland, hoping that he could provide some information on the young woman seen on the steps and whether he could identify her as Amanda Carter. Approximately 36 hours after Amanda went missing, Gerald and his taxi were tracked down to the taxi rank at the Hobart airport. Allowing investigators to search his vehicle, they found a handbag matching the one that Amanda had with her that night and it was shoved into the boot of his car. His taxi was immediately impounded and Gerald was taken to the Hobart headquarters to give a statement. When asked about the girl on the CML building steps and of the handbag in his boot, Gerald gave a rather innocent explanation. He claimed that in the early hours of Sunday morning, he had approached the woman on the steps to ask if she needed a taxi. She said she didn't and told him that she was waiting for a friend. Gerald then claimed that he had driven to another nearby taxi rank in Murray Street where he picked up a fare to Windermere Beach, approximately 15 minutes north. Upon returning to the city, Gerald told investigators that he once again stopped at the CML taxi rank. By this time, the girl was gone, but he noticed that she had left her bag behind. He went and retrieved it, looking inside for identification but finding none. He then put the bag into his car with the intention to hand it in at the dispatcher's office later that day. By this time, he said it was around 3.30am and he decided to call it a night. He drove to a nearby service station in North Hobart, filled his taxi with petrol, then drove back up to Windermere Beach where he slept in his taxi until morning. Gerald explained that he and his de facto wife had been going through a rough patch, so he spent most nights sleeping rough. After he woke, he said he went to watch his younger son play soccer before returning to his family home to shower and to change his clothes. He gave police permission to retrieve the clothes he was wearing that night so they could be analysed but were found to have no stains or fibres on them to link to Amanda. And while the examination of the taxi yielded a fresh stain in the middle of the back seat containing both sperm and vaginal epithelial cells, nothing could be linked to Amanda also and upon showing the handbag that was found in Gerald's taxi to Amanda's parents and sister, they were all adamant that it did not belong to her. This put the investigators back at square one, and they were still no closer in locating Amanda. A media appeal went out for anyone with information to come forward, and a composite sketch of the man with the striking red hair and beard was published in the Mercury newspaper, in the hopes that someone might recognise who he was. No one came forward, but when a $10,000 reward was offered, the rumours and sightings began flooding in. People came forward to say that Amanda had run off with an ex-boyfriend to Queensland. Others claimed that she was a drug runner. She'd even been spotted in a logging truck on the east coast of Tasmania in Swansea, and had apparently taken up with a local bikey gang. But the most promising lead to come in was that Amanda had been kidnapped by three men who had left Tasmania on the Sunday, skipping out on a bail hearing they had scheduled for the Monday morning. The three young men were known to police and they quickly confirmed that they had in fact left for the mainland just hours after Amanda was last seen. Within days however, police from Queensland made contact to inform detectives that the three men were in their custody, having been arrested in the possession of a stolen vehicle. Detectives were on the next flight out to Queensland where the three men were all interviewed but denied having any knowledge of Amanda or her whereabouts. To prove they had nothing to do with her disappearance, all three even confessed to a crime they had committed that night outside of Hobart and because of this they were ruled out as suspects. They then decided to try hypnotherapy with Debbie to see if she could recall any more events from their night out. But during the session with a licensed hypnotherapist, both of the exhausted detectives were lulled off to sleep and Debbie was unable to offer any further information. Then about two weeks after she disappeared, a call came in to the Hobart police station from a young man who believed that he and his cousin were the two men that they were looking for. He told them that his name was Lester and that he was calling from his hometown of Tala just under 400 kilometres northwest of Hobart. He said that he had just picked up a week-old newspaper and spotted the composite sketch and upon reading the attached article, he knew he had to contact them. Lester told investigators that he and his cousin Stanley were in Hobart that night, that they had left the Hope and Anchor with two sisters named Amanda and Debbie and that one of them had bright red hair and beard. Upon hearing this, the detectives left immediately to travel in nearly four hours to Tulla to interview the two. Their version of events that night was that they had met both girls at the Hope and Anchor Tavern. They chatted, danced and had a few drinks together before all four left sometime around 2am. From there, they began walking down Macquarie Street, Lester in the company of Debbie and his cousin Stanley in front of them with Amanda. Coming across a payphone, an intoxicated Stanley thought it was the perfect time to make a 15-minute early morning call to his parents in Victoria. Instead of waiting for Stanley, Amanda kept walking a bit further down Macquarie Street before crossing the road when she reached the post office. Lester said he called out to Amanda to see if she was okay and she told him that she was ready to go home and was going to wait for a taxi. She then walked to the steps of the CML building and sat down. When Stanley had finished his call, he, Lester and Debbie continued on and went for a walk along Hobart's foreshore. A couple of hours later they walked Debbie back to the rank so she could get her taxi home before they both continued to their accommodation. The following day the two men returned to Tulla and had not seen or heard anything about Amanda's disappearance until Lester had picked up the newspaper. A check of phone records and a visit to Stanley's parents in Victoria proved that they had received a call early that morning and the two men were ruled out as suspects. While this lead went nowhere, it did confirm to investigators what they believed all along, that the woman seen by multiple people intoxicated on the CML building steps was in fact Amanda Carter, and they began to suspect once again that taxi driver Gerald Highland knew more than what he was letting on. Brought back in for another interview, Gerald was interrogated for nearly five hours, but he never wavered from his original story. He denied having any knowledge of Amanda's whereabouts, denied having picked her up that night and denied that she was ever in his cab. When asked about the fresh stain on his back seat, Gerald also denied having any knowledge of how it had got there. He claimed to have never had sex in his car, none of his customers had had sex in his car, he was the only person who ever drove that taxi and he denied having even masturbated in it. A look into his background revealed that he was a small-time crook. With prior convictions for assault, burglary and car theft, but nothing serious. Gerald was free to go once again. Then, on September the 11th, the body of a young woman was found by fishermen on the edge of the Derwent River, near Bridgewater, 25 kilometres north of Hobart. She was lying face down, her arms stretched above her head and was partially clothed. Taken to the morgue at the Royal Hobart Hospital, the body was identified by a family friend as being that of 22-year-old Amanda Carter. At autopsy, it was discovered that Amanda had damage to her mouth and face consistent with being punched. Vaginal swabs revealed the presence of semen and damage to her neck showed that she had been strangled. Her hyoid bone fractured. But this is not what had killed her. Amanda had drowned. Tiny organisms called diatomes were found in her lungs and the only way they could have got there was from breathing in the waters of the Derwent River. The secluded location of where her body was found suggested that someone familiar with the area had put her there, so investigators spoke to the locals in hopes that someone saw any vehicles on the dead-end dirt road that led down to the river's edge. One local came forward to tell them that he recalled seeing a yellow taxi in that area at around the time of Amanda's disappearance. He remembered this because he thought it was an odd area for a taxi to be driving, and he described the driver as having, quote, a head like a bastard pig, end quote, which detectives thought matched Gerald Highland perfectly, but any hopes of forensically linking Gerald to the area failed. Brought in for questioning once again, detectives decided to drive him out to the crime scene to see what his reaction would be. Once there, however, Gerald admitted to regularly visiting that area to fish and on a few occasions had even parked his taxi there to sleep at the end of a shift. But he was adamant that he had not been in the area on the night Amanda went missing, and insisted that he had no further information to offer them, and refused to give a blood sample. An inquest into Amanda's death commenced. It was found that the ABO blood typing from the stain on the back seat of Gerald's taxi was both Group A and Group B. Samples taken from Amanda at autopsy indicated that she had blood A grouping, but because her red blood cells had already broken down, it could not be 100% proven, and because Gerald had refused to give his blood, his grouping was still unknown. Then the investigators learned that a person's blood grouping could be determined from other samples, such as a drinking straw or a cigarette butt. So on one of the days that Gerald was requested to attend the inquest, one of the investigators offered him a cigarette from his own packet. Once discarded, it was quickly collected and sent to forensics, and it was determined that Gerald Highland had blood grouping B. By the end of the inquest, all that could be determined was that someone with Gerald's blood type had sex with someone with Amanda's blood type on the back seat of the taxi, and the coroner gave an open finding that her death was caused by drowning by person or persons unknown. Not to be discouraged, the detectives placed all the biological evidence into deep freezer storage to await the advancement of forensic science and promised Amanda's family that they would never stop trying. In 1990, ten 10 years after her murder, a DNA specialist at Tasmania's Government Analysis Lab examined the biological samples to determine their viability to undergo this new and revolutionary testing but it was decided that they would wait for future advancements, otherwise risk destroying the evidence they had. Less than three years later, detectives learnt that scientists at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Pathology in Melbourne had begun using the new technique of PCR in their testing of DNA, and the samples were immediately sent over. When the results came back, it showed that the odds that Amanda was the contributor of the vaginal epithelial cells found on Gerald Highland's back seat was 140000 to one. On June 25th, 1993, armed with this new information, the detectives flew to Melbourne where Gerald was now living in the suburb of Ringwood. The following day, Gerald voluntarily attended the police station, where he thought he was to be interviewed by local cops in regards to a bogus fundraising scheme he had been involved in. But when the Tasmanian detectives walked in, he became visibly shaken. Once again he was asked if he had any involvement in the assault and murder of Amanda and once again he replied with no. Once again he was asked if Amanda had been in his taxi and once again he replied no. And when the DNA evidence was put to him he still claimed no knowledge and when asked once more to provide a blood sample he again refused. Less than an hour after his interview began, Gerald Highland was under arrest and on June 29th, he was extradited back to Tasmania. As he stepped off the plane, he was immediately taken to the same hospital that Amanda's autopsy took place. Now that he was in custody, detectives were able to get the blood sample they'd been waiting for for years. And DNA testing proved that he was the other contributor to the stain on the back seat. Gerald Highland pleaded not guilty to the rape and murder of Amanda and was sent to the Supreme Court of Tasmania in October 1994 to stand trial. But just three days in, he changed his plea to guilty of manslaughter. He told the court that in the early morning hours of Sunday the 27th of July, he had spotted Amanda on the steps of the CML building and after he had taken his fare to Windermere Beach, returned to the building where he helped Amanda into the back of his cab. He claimed that as soon as she got in, she lay down on the seat and went to sleep. It was at this point that he was witnessed picking up the handbag that was left behind. From here, he drove to North Hobart to fill his cab with fuel. He was seen here by other drivers, but because Amanda was laying down, she was not visible to anyone. He then continued on out to Bridgewater and went down the dead-end dirt road of Riverside Drive, which led to the edge of the Derwent River. He then proceeded to rape Amanda before attempting to strangle her. Thinking she was dead, he dragged her body from the car and up to the water's edge where she was hidden from view in the tall reeds. Being face down and unconscious, 22-year-old Amanda Carter drowned. Gerald Wayne Highland was sentenced to six years imprisonment for rape and a further ten years for manslaughter. But just over nine years into his 16 year sentence, Gerald was granted parole and was released on July 30, 2002, from the minimum security Hayes Prison Farm. In November 2007, in an effort to keep track of Gerald's movements once his parole finished, he was placed on the sex offenders register for 10 years. His current location is unknown. Unfortunately, Amanda's father, Don Carter, never saw her killer brought to justice having passed away at the age of just 66 from a short battle with a rare form of leukaemia, less than two months before the trial was due to begin. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week when we bring you another story picked fresh straight from the Crime Tree. All photos pertaining to this case will be up on our Instagram at the Crime Tree.